Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, the Obama administration makes a prisoner swap. Is this no one left behind or a deal with terrorists? Edward Snowden and NBC's Brian Williams have a quaint chat. Did that change the way America looks at Snowden? Is his 15 minutes going to continue? Big shakeup at the Veterans Administration. Was this a corrective action or a Band-Aid on a bigger problem? Special guest Rick Weidman, Executive Director for Government Affairs of the Vietnam Veterans of America, joins the discussion. Finally, Jay Carney closes out last week with a resignation. How hard was his job and how hard is the job as a whole? That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is a slightly injured, but he is the former floor chief for the then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford, former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He's the Honorable and slightly maimed Bob Hines. Bob, what are you doing? Well, I fell down, and that's just the way it is. But uh, I'm glad to be here today, Tuesday, to join the group. Well, thanks, Bob. hope you feel better. And directly across the table, as he is every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce. He's a longtime Senate staffer. He is a very distinguished and factual and handsome fellow from the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Uh, and to my right, ironically, across the table, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party, the great state of Maryland. He is the longtime Washington insider and former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox. He is Carl Tubin. Hi, Carl. Hello, Justin. And uh, hello out there in Radio Land. Wh- wow, you're animated today, Carl. When you, you drink a Red Bull or something. <laughs> hey, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, around the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to have special guest Rick Wyden, who is the executive director of the Vietnam Veterans of America, one of the great veteran services organizations here in town. Uh, they're going to be talking. About, we're going to be talking about the VA shakeup, but. The big news happening right now that we're talking about, and by the way, you can join the conversation. Our phone lines are open, 877-662-3713. Again, toll-free, 877-662-3713. Or you can tweet your questions to me, at BackroomPolitik on the Twitter system, or email justin at backroompolitics.org with any of your questions. Uh, the, the big news that we're talking about right now is, the, we're going to start off talking about this this prisoner exchange, which is something, is a term that's been going on with um, 
that the administration's been putting out as a prisoner exchange, as a prisoner of war situation. But here's the latest. Uh, about five years ago, a, a member of the armed forces who was, uh, who was stationed in, um, in Afghanistan would, left his post, allegedly. Uh, this member of the armed forces was then captured by Taliban fighters uh, near his posting. There are many questions around his, de his departure from his post, but uh, it was announced that Bo Berg... I, I can't even pronounce this. Berg Bergdahl? Bergdahl. Bergdahl. Bo Bergdahl uh, from Idaho. He was the last known U.S. soldier in Afghanistan that was unaccounted for. Uh, he was given over to American Special Forces for... Uh, about 6 p.m. on Saturday. This, all, this was followed by the exchange of five Taliban prisoners being held in Guantanamo Bay, and quite frankly, this is a very disturbing, disturbing situation. First of all, Alan Moore, let's start with you. You've got a situation where we have a, 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 a prisoner of war, being held by non-enemy combatants in the Taliban. Was this a legitimate prisoner exchange per se, as we would see it in like from World War II, as we see the Israelis doing with the Palestinians? This, something about this just doesn't seem in the norm. It seems to me that anytime there's a prisoner's exchange, you have to decide, is this in our best interest when you take everything into account? Timing, health of the person, individual circumstances, uh, and what you're giving up. And the one where this fails in my judgment is that we gave up too much. Uh, there's a lot, of an a lot of things we don't know the answers to. Um, for me, it's not about the circumstances under which he left, uh, left the military, although there is an enormous amount of evidence now that he did desert, if you will, but he didn't. He, he he wasn't a traitor in terms of going over to the other side, exchanging information. He just didn't like what the military was doing. There's a lot of evidence of that, and apparently left most of his belongings behind, including his weapon and his protective vest, and he left in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, but but for me, that's not what's important. Um, he is an American. He's not exactly been living a great life for the last five years. It was definitely worth uh, a lot on our part to, to try to get him out. I just think we traded too much. I don't like the circumstances under which it was done, but, but at the end of the day, was it in our interest to do this? And I don't think it was because these guys we traded for are such bad guys. Now, here's the, here's the trick, and Denise Krepp joining us at the table slightly late. She is the former House Counsel to Benny Thompson's Homeland Security Committee and Obama appointees General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Yeah, you know, we started for Denise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Denise, going off of the uh, Bergdahl transfer, prisoner exchange, however you want to call it, uh, the reality is, is that the U.S. did not, according to administration officials, did not directly engage in talks with the Taliban about this exchange. According to several Ameri uh, administration officials, they're saying 
that the exchange was brokered by Qatar and that the five uh, high risk, by the way, they were classified as high risk, prisoners from Guantanamo, Taliban senior officials, were transferred to Qatar and turned back over to the Taliban. Does this, this sounds like a lot of spin coming from an administration that has zero transparency to begin with. Oh, give me a break. First of all, with Congress whining, whoa, we didn't get 30 days notice. When? Under the law, they're supposed to, though, Denise. When? You're right. You know what we should do? We should say to the Taliban, you know what? We'd love to talk to you, but we have to wait 30 days. So when 30 days stops, we'll be happy to talk to you. But B answer his question. Answer my question, though. Was this spin by this administration? No, it's not spin. It's the honest truth. By the way, it's you know, is somebody brokering a deal that brings an American home? Absolutely. Can I tell you how many veterans events where I've been where they've had an empty chair just for this individual? There are so many people that are thrilled for him to be home. And I'm sorry, Justin, cry me a bucket, you know, for all of Congress. And I'm going to say this. He didn't mention Congress. Well, he but has I not am, mentioned but Congress. I, and the reason well, I am, and, and let me just give you some family background. <laughs> My father's roommate at West Point was um, KIA in Vietnam. His brother was MIA. He had two other siblings that were in Vietnam. So I, I, I've watched how MIA, KIA status has impacted families for 40 years and so many of those individuals would have done a hell of a lot to get their folks home, Denise, just like they did wait, for, wait a minute, for John McCain. Denise, Denise, so Denise, don't go, tell me that this guy no, I am gonna go back to this. home. No, no, I am going to go back to this. Denise, here's the, here's the point and here's where I get upset by all the people are saying, oh, well, we, we had to bring them home. If for no other reason, I want them home to answer. I mean, this, every military unit I was ever associated with, those guys always had my back, and they always covered for me. You know, whether I was late showing know. up for muster, they and covered. Until we These know guys won't even cover he for him. He needs to come home. We do not leave Americans abroad. He, he comes home. Bob Heinz, did he make the choice when he left his weapon on his bed and decided to abandon his post? Well, I wasn't there, so I really don't know, but that's what he did. But, you know, let me step back to this for a minute. You know, I understand why we want to get every American home who's been taken by the enemy, no matter what the circumstances. I think that's a basic position for, I think, most Americans. We want to get them all back. I, and I, if, if for no other reason, to find out exactly what was in his mind. But secondly, five known major terrorists for one sergeant or a corporal or something. Here's my point. My guess, my guess is that if we had negotiated harder, more difficult, more, more determined, we might have been able to do a much better deal. I think Alan made a reasonable point. It's a, you know, I can understand wanting to get the gentleman back, the soldier back, no matter what he did, you know, deserted his post or whatever. That's fine. Or if he didn't, even more so, I'd want him back home. But it seems to me that giving up five evil men who are just who are very significant <laughs> senior guys in Al Qaeda in and Taliban seems to me we could have. We could have cut that deal a lot better than we did. But, I, I think mean, we gave up more than we should have. We made it, and we sound like we're too easy. Well, I mean, under this deal, okay, the Taliban said 
that was not a it was not supposed to be a prisoner exchange, a prisoner of war exchange. The Taliban wanted U.S. officials to call it a transfer of personnel. They dictated that. Carl, does this make sense? Because to me, this sounds like a fundamental shift in U.S. policy. Well, it could be a fundamental shift, but the point is, uh, he's coming back, and he wasn't left behind. If uh, we had pulled out of Afghanistan and only had um, um, 10,000 people there, they might have murdered him. He's coming home. General Dempsey has said that he will be he will be questioned, and and if if they find out that he deserted, he could be go to a military trial, as 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 should be. <clears throat> but, we, oh, sorry. but we need to find out the full extent. The other thing is, the president has said <clears throat> that we will be watchful of these five people in Qatar. And uh, uh, if something happens where they go off the reservation, they, they will, they will, uh, we will get them. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Alan Moore, Mohammed Fazi. Let's just take one of these guys. Mohammed Fazi. Between 1998 and 2001, according to several accounts, this guy was responsible for killing thousands of Shiites in Afghanistan. This guy's a monster. Uh, and, and we gave him up. And, and many of those who died were little girls whose sin was going to school. These guys are very, very bad guys. And this, this was really the point that, yes, we want our guy back. If he was a hero or a big question about him, he's a U.S. serviceman, we want to get him back. But not at any price, no matter what, we could have given, we could have emptied Guantanamo, given up every single guy in there for him, and I suppose there's some people who would say, good, then we would have been able to close Guantanamo. The question is, you need some proportionality. You need, the, if there's a quid pro quo kind of exchange, you need to, to consider whether what you're giving up is perhaps going to do more damage to American interests is it going to make put a is it going to going to going to put a target on every other serviceman that's even brighter than before and every diplomat in America all we need to do is get some of their guys and we'll be able to disproportionately swap does it matter that the current afghan government is up in arms about this deal because they were not party to it and these taliban guys who will go to cutter and this notion of keeping track of them for a year is a joke. It's laughable. These guys are going to, they, they, they are not a stop. They're not a stop from communicating. And in a year, they will be done. So maybe they stay out of things for a year. We don't know what they're going to do. Maybe there's some secret stuff. Maybe there's some understanding. Maybe we've recruited one or more to be spies. I don't know. There's things, well, we, there's things we don't know. But what we do know makes it look like we didn't, that, that, the, that the quid was not big enough for the quo. You know, the funny thing about it, before, before the show, Bob Matarazzi seems to think that they went Jack Bauer on and they planted chips in them, so we're tracking them with chips. But Bob Matarazzi, the owner of Shelley's, great guy. They need scrap. Come on. I mean, first of all, we're never going to know what the true deal was. We know we have one, they have five. 
Do we know any other details? Absolutely not. Will we know in the future? Possibly. But I'm sure that there was more behind the scenes going on. I'm not going to backroom quarterback this one. We have our guy home. And for me, as a veteran, and for others, he needed to come home. And that's it, Justin. It, well, he I, needs to come you know home, what, and me, he needs to answer those questions. For, for me, as a veteran, to give up five guys that were masterminds of the killing, I mean, not, not, not on top of the fact that this guy abandoned his post, and the people who went to go look for him, three American service members were killed going after him. Oh, I'm sorry, six American service members were we killed don't going know looking for left. him. If he left, for, you know, why did he leave? He has to come home and answer those questions. And he, that's the case, then that's beyond his head. But he has to come home. Let us, let, us, let us at least acknowledge that there are differences of opinion among veterans yeah. on whether this was a good deal or not. Even at this table, some mm -hmm. powerful differences of opinion. I personally don't feel like you have to, you, that, that, that only veterans' opinions matter, but I, will, but, I, but I will point out that the people who are going after him personally, which I'm not at all, I don't, as I said, I think that if he's a deserter or a hero, it was a bad deal. Right. But, but, but because it seems so disproportionate. Um, but the people who are going after him personally are people who are members of his unit who said he was strange, he was writing stuff, he was asking questions, and he disappeared. There doesn't, the, and, and the administration is not fighting this, he was a deserter line. For me, that's just a side story that's not that important. But, but on top of the fact, those are veterans. Those are veterans' issues. Yeah. But let me go, let, let's go back to the heart of this, is that there, this is a systematic change in U.S. policy. We have made it. We have it's still not a systematic change. In Denise, why not? After Vietnam, we did a swap. After Korea, we did a swap. After World War II, we did a swap. What, what is the difference? Because there's a major difference here. Really? We got our guy home. We got Vietnam, our guy home after Vietnam. Vietnam, we dealt with the Vietnam government. They were uniformed combatants. World War II, we dealt with both Japan and Germany, mm -hmm. both uniformed combatants. We did it in World War One. We've done it in the Civil War, where they were uniform combatants. And the Taliban is world. not a. It, we it's are not in a, a new world. We Justin. have a position where we do not deal with terrorists, and the Taliban is a marked terrorist organization, according to our Secretary Department. Bob Hines. I agree that the Taliban is not a government. That really isn't the point to me. I think whether you're dealing with a government or a, an organization, which is a political organization, which is, is, is what we're dealing with and fighting with, if we have to deal with them, we have to deal with them. I can understand that. I, but I tend to believe, this was, Alan and I, I think, agree on this, it's a disproportionate decision we made. We, we gave up an awful lot to get, to get this person back, and I'm glad we're going to get him back, and I'd like to know what the truth of the matter is about his situation. But I think it was a very uh, unbalanced negotiation. Alan Moore. We, we like to say that we don't deal with terrorists. We like to tell the Nigerians that they should not negotiate with Boko Haram, the people who took these 300 little girls. But we deal with half who we have to deal with. We deal if we want something to happen. And if we launder those negotiations through the Qataris, 
so be it. Let's not pretend that that means we didn't negotiate with terrorists. We did. We're negotiating with Iran. Iran is a bigger enemy in that region than is the Taliban. So I, this, it, it's more the hypocrisy involved as opposed to the practicality that when there's something we want, we have to find a way to deal with the people who have what we want. And the, the fact that we, that, that we have a third party who, who could do this for us, sometimes it's the Swiss who negotiate or the, for, or the Vatican. There's different people, but it doesn't mean we're not really negotiating. Sometimes we don't have any communications links, so we do deal through a third party. I think it's stupid of us to pretend that we don't negotiate with terrorists. Of course we do. Sometimes it succeeds. Sometimes it fails. Sometimes it's a good deal. Sometimes it's not a good deal. But yes, we deal with terrorists directly or through third but if parties. You look at, if you look at some of the comments, let's say, for example, uh, Chairman Mike Rogers, Republican of Michigan, yes. House, House Intelligence Committee. Mike Rogers says, quote, the fundamental shift in U.S. policy, this fundamental shift in U.S. policy signals to terrorists around the world a greater incentive to take U.S. hostages. Well, which, no, which no, I don't know. No. Do we disagree with Mike Rogers on this? No, yeah. I agree, yeah. but it's not because we're not negotiating with terrorists. No. It's because they can take our people and they can get disproportionate benefit. They can empty Guantanamo with a handful of people. They can ask for the moon, and we will give it to them. I've heard people say, well, the Israelis gave up over a 1,000 guys for one, and I thought, wait a minute, so their stupid decision is supposed to give us perspective on ours? No, our, our decisions have to be based on our interests. And at this vantage point, with the, without having, now, without knowing everything. Now, in defense, now in defense of the administration, though, let me let me talk about one of our associate producers, Yaron Kakon, is is an Israeli national. Mm -hmm. She is very familiar. They routinely do prisoner exchanges. I know they do. And it's it's it, they exchange them like baseball cards. They've got lots more to give up, and they really put a high premium on bringing a single soldier back. We put a high premium on that too. But what you have to do is look collectively at your at your total national interest. They do it. They reach certain conclusions. We do it. We've reached in this particular instance a conclusion. Carl Tubman. You know, I <clears throat> there's a lot more to this than we know about. And I think when the story comes out, eventually, could be one year, two years, three years from now, that we're going to see there were more reasons to do this than not to do it. And I think that's... that. You know, Alan Moore. Well, one of the problems here is this administration um, has developed a reputation and earned it of not, be, not being transparent, not being entirely forthcoming about things that happen, and of trying to take advantage. So they bring the parents out and have this celebratory mood, which I found really strange, makes that father and some of the things he said suddenly a side issue. It's the, it's the administration trying to have its cake and eat it too. The president has said, and Dennis McDonough said, that this is not a surprise to the Congress. They've, they've known about this. And Mike Rogers says, yeah, there was a conversation in 2011, 30 months ago, with bipartisan heads of the intelligence committees about this kind of thing, and they pushed back. They've heard nothing since, and they heard about this one after the fact. I'm yeah. not hung up about the 30-day thing, although I think when the president decides to unilaterally ignore the law, he feeds the narrative of what he's done with several other laws. Um, okay, well, first Denise of all, crap. 
you guys have heard me talk in the past. I've had problems with transparency in this administration, but I do not think that transparency is the issue here. And I, I, think, I think the problem... And I just said that. I, I, yeah. I, I, what I'm saying, though, is that when you are given an opportunity, you have to be able to move on a dime. You really have to. And that's what happened here. If they approached us and said, we would like to swap, we can pick them up tomorrow, Roger that, let me get a plane, let me get people, let's go. I mean, so for Congress to say, geez, we didn't follow the law, the law has to be practical. And you, again, you don't say, I have to have 30 days notice, and sometimes you have less than 30 seconds notice. But when you say that the, the, they, the, the transparency is not the issue here, when a senior administration official says that Bergdahl's release was, quote, not a concession and was, with, was in line with Obama's goal of closing the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, that, to me, that, that's not transparent. That's him making a political promise and p releasing five high-risk terrorists to make a political well, promise work. I, I don't think that the releases of five had anything to do with closing a the administration. The administration says I, that. Again, I don't think it had anything to do. It's called, you know, you want one, we give you five. That's what happened here. But, but, but again, let me go back. Let me, let me just go back and reiterate this. A senior administration official... Is he on the record? He, he's been on the record on several points. Who's on the record? Who is this guy? We'll, f we'll find out. But AP really? reported it? Wait, wait, wait. But AP well, I'm, I'm it. really going to trust some guy who's not willing to put his or her name out there. So, you know, give oh, me all the facts. Oh, come on, Denise, Denise, come on. Do you think a senior administration official that would go even even leak this if he didn't get a clue? Yes, line? absolutely. Yeah. They talk all the time. <laughs> senior administration official could be any of hundreds and hundreds of Maybe people. Not. I don't believe that the administration is ever going to cop to the thought that this is part of our plan to start emptying Guantanamo. Lots of people think it is, and people are going to be watching what happens. But that's 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 a, that's another side issue here for me. But okay, Bob. I'm sorry, Denise. Crip, go ahead. We've been picking on you all day. You had some extra time. <laughs> yeah, I didn't show up at four o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't ever make that mistake. Yeah. You've been here on time. You should have heard what you missed. Oh my God. Oh my God. You all get here at four o'clock, but at least you're able to talk in the first half hour. I know. I know. I know. The world is changing. Okay. Yeah. I would hope that as we all learn more, and and I'm guessing we're going to have some hearings about this that the individual comes forward and he has to answer questions about this. I mean, you have to be able to say what happened. And, I mean, the administration it owes it to Congress, but also owes it to the American people, especially the families of those who died trying to save this guy. Of what was the timeline? And that's going to be my problem, is if they're not upfront about the timeline of when did you get the phone call, of can you do this deal, that's going to be a problem. It's my hope that they now, will release that. Now, now according to the Washington Post, they're saying that Congress wasn't notified until after he was already in U.S. See, that's custody. That's my problem when Congress says that. Then go back to your staffer and say, when did you get the briefing and did you do any follow-up? That's called oversight on Congress's part. But, uh, Congress but the administration say, didn't give Congress the ability to do oversight on Congress this. They told him after no, no, he was in U.S. custody. No way. I don't buy that argument. And the reason I don't buy it is this guy has been hot in a hostage situation for five years. So it is Congress's responsibility as part of their oversight to understand what is going on. If that means picking up the phone call, which is what I used to do as a staffer, and saying, hey, where are we on this? Then that's Congress's job. That's called oversight. Let's not wait a minute, wait blaming Congress. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here. I was with you and saying, this isn't about Congress. The problem with the Congress is the president, once again, has 
ignored a law, which is very clear. One can understand why he might do that. I don't think that's going to be a major big-time issue. But to say that the Congress was at fault for not calling up every day and say, what's going on, is a step too far here. Supposedly, these negotiations have been on and off and on and off for a couple of years, but... But I have to take Mike Rogers at his word when he says the last time we heard anything and we all pushed back was 30 months ago. And there are also reports that these current negotiations started up again back in December. All right, we're, we're going to let that, we're going to continue this into the next segment because there's a lot to talk about that we still haven't touched on. So when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion on the Bergdahl release and the transfer of personnel between the Taliban and the U.S. government. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., on Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. Hey, uh, Bob Hines, you had a comment. We're still talking about the Bo Bergdahl Taliban transfer that happened over the weekend. Uh, to me, one of the things that the administration did not do, which I think they should have done, because as Alan has said, I mean, we, we're sure of this, I think, these negotiations have been going on for a long, long time. And it isn't, though, you get to a point where somebody says, if you don't say yes right now, it's all off. You know, it's a, it's a continuing discussion. And it seems to me that at the point where we decide that we're willing to meet the demands of the Taliban to release this gentleman, it seems to me that we have enough time for the administration at the highest level to make sure that the leadership of Congress at the, at the highest level and is at the, uh, and it's at the appropriate committee level, the security committees of both in the House and the Senate, just, you know, you're talking about half a dozen calls, maybe eight or ten calls, and just so they know what's going on and why we are doing it. And I think that this administration, just as usual, screws things up. And they, I think they made a huge mistake by just blowing this thing up all of a sudden, and it just, it just makes it so difficult for people on Capitol Hill to want to work with them. Carl Tubin? I'm going to take the opposite view. <clears throat> I think that if, if they had given the 30 days notice and told them what they were going to do, that somewhere along in the fifth or sixth day afterward, this would have leaked to the press and blown the whole thing to smithereens. Well, then... Bob Hines. It's possible to be some people on Capitol Hill are really uh, bad guys or girls or whatever, but I can't believe that if you're talking to the very top people, you're going to have that problem. Diane Feinstein, hold on real quickly. Diane Feinstein supported uh, the, the uh, Obama decision. She said, quote, particularly in light of Sergeant Bergdahl's declining health, she continued on saying, quote, it demonstrates that America leaves no soldier behind. Well, Diane Feinstein has been on both sides of this issue in the last 48 hours. So uh, I, I had heard that quote, and then I also heard her say that that uh, that it, it it bothers her no small amount that there was no uh, sharing of information with this this key circle. I I I, I don't I don't have uh, I don't share Carl's lack of faith in the ability of the senior people on the intelligence committees and armed services committee to keep secrets. They keep thousands of secrets every day of their life. And, and I'm guessing that if this had been a, a, a Republican president and, and, uh, and some, some uh, well, it's, we, we've, got a, we've got a Republican House and a, and a, and a Democratic Senate, that, that your view would have been different. I think that this president, and this is one of his problems, has continued to show his ignorance and lack of trust or confidence in anybody in the Congress. Supposedly, Harry Reid heard about this the morning of. So he got advance notice by a couple of hours. Um, and and uh, when, you, when, you, when you ignore the Congress this way and you ignore the way our government works, uh, it breeds discontent, lack of faith, lack of confidence, and there are secrets that are kept that are much bigger than this. And on top of that, all the time. Well, let, let me let me talk to you about uh, Chairman Howard McKeon, Republican out of California, House Armed Services Committee Chair, uh, as well as 
uh, Senator Inhofe out of Oklahoma, who serves on the Senate Armed Services Committee, both of them say that this is, quote, a, a demonstration of Obama and the administration, quote, clearly violated laws. Denise? No. No, you disagree. I, I do disagree. I mean, if we are given an opportunity to bring a man or woman home, we bring them home. If that means you have to pick up the phone afterwards and you have to call and say, I'm sorry. Regardless of the law. The lawyer here says, who cares about the law? Hold on, let Denise finish. Let Denise finish. Yeah, because I've had the benefit of not only being a lawyer, but I've also been in charge of an agency. And there are some times when you have to make sure that the law is flexible. The law doesn't say we need to keep... Americans held hostage by the Taliban. The law well, says the law says you have to contact Congress. Wait, a minute. The, the law says that you have to notify mm-hmm. Congress 30 days prior to the execution of any deal like this. That's clear. You're right. And according to several key members on the Armed Services Committee, mm-hmm. the administration's got some answers they've got to get. And you're well, right, and the administration should be answering. I'm not going to say the administration doesn't know answers. It does. But should I say we should be holding people just because we didn't give people 30 notice? Absolutely not. And, 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 Go ahead. And from the very beginning, I said this, this, was, this was not the main issue here. Most of the legal experts <coughs> that, I, that have commented on this said, oh, yeah. He broke the law, but that kind of thing happens. There's no sanctions in the law for breaking it, and he he alerted the world when he signed this law with a signing statement, the kind of statement he used to be hugely critical of when President Bush would issue them, saying, this is the law, I'm signing this, but I am not promising to abide by this particular provision. So, you know, he sort of gave this advance notice, and there's no teeth in the law. Now, here's the problem. He's doing this in immigration law. He did it over and over again with Obamacare. So it feeds this narrative, that, and that and all the executive age actions that they plan to take, that he doesn't care. Well, pretty soon Democrats in the Congress are going to start to care. Some of them already do. That's not good for the country, not, not, no. not good for the no. system. But that does not mean that every now and then, especially in a matter of of foreign policy, of unique opportunity that you can't say, okay, what are we going to do here? This has got to be one of those rare times where we will knowingly break the law. We think we've alerted the, 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 the country to the fact that we might need to do that from time to time. We're going to do it this time. He's done it now, too many in, times. In defense of Denise, though, okay, in defense of Denise, showing that I am an impartial moderator sometimes, <laughs> Where will be the day? Yeah. 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 Whoa, whoa, hey, hey, I'm sitting right here. Good Lord. Hey, Where is that? You got outvoted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we need him. Okay, you know what? You're cut off the rest of the segment. The, um, Reuters reported back in 2011 about a possible deal regarding these five members of the Taliban and Bergdahl. They said, and Reuters reported that there were some mid-level discussions going on with a third party. They didn't get into all the details. But apparently this had been going on through, since 2011, which means that this ties back to discussions that this administration has been having for now three and a half years. And this goes back to Obama's first term. And still... Nobody in the Intelligence Committee or the House Armed Services Committee was notified. For those who are listening early, 
or I pointed out that Mike Rogers said in 2011, mm -hmm. we had some conversations. Some people from the administration came up here and talked in sort of generically about the possibility of a swap involving some high-value targets in, in, in Guantanamo, and, and both parties uh, pushed back on this as a bad idea. We've heard nothing since. Right. Right. But, I mean, okay. You can't call that, oh, this was no surprise. They've been aware for a long time that we're having these and, kinds of conversations. And, and you're right. Should, should a briefing have happened? Absolutely. But I can tell you, somebody, I mean, and you've been in the same situation I was, Ellen, being, you know, over at AID and the others. Sometimes you have to make decisions and then you have to pick up the phone. And, and it happens. I mean, should it always be the case? Absolutely not. I mean, should they have gotten their ducks in the order a little bit better? Probably. Should they have had a little bit was better this, talking Denise, was this, the, was this Obama at these commander-in-chief? Yes. Bob Hines, you agree? Well, it's it's his decision. He's the only guy who can make that decision. Yeah. Alan Moore? Yeah, he's, being, he's yeah. commander in chief. He was also trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to say, well, we had reports of his bad health. Well, we'll see if that happens because that's not at all that's not at all clear. And we have this unique window of opportunity, and we're going to bring the parents out, and we're going to treat this like a big celebration. So he overplayed his hand, which has contributed to his problems. Carl, Carl Tubin, I mean, he is the commander-in-chief. He is the commander of all armed forces. And as commander-in-chief, did he act as commander-in-chief? People say he doesn't act like it. In this case, he did. And hopefully he has good reason to have done so. Well, hopefully is different than higher risk of releasing high-risk targets back into circulation. That is always a concern for any administration that you put in these targets or you put in these prisoners, they're in your custody, we can monitor them. Do you, th do you honestly believe, Carl, that, the, that the, the Taliban will keep these guys out of circulation? All of a sudden they're running shops in the middle of you know, a small village in northern Afghanistan and they're not going to be involved in trying to kill the infidel? I have a feeling that these people are going to be watched very closely. By who? <clears throat> by us. The Qataris. But by, by, by us? By us. We can't even, Qatari we intelligence. Can't even find... We, <laughs> <laughs> That's an oxymoron. Uh, what do you mean? We can't even find what? We found on Osama bin Laden. I mean, we found a lot of other people. We brought this guy out. We made this deal. The president says that we're going to we're going to follow these people, and I think we have the ability to do it. Denise Kraft? I, I would have put a marker down for talking about Guantanamo Bay, and I'm going to do it tying into what's about to happen um, at the end of this week, which is the 70th anniversary of uh, D-Day. After World War II, the uh, U.S., the Canadians, the British, the French, and the Russians got together, and they created a, a prison in Berlin. And uh, what they did was they, everybody put their uh, prisoners, there, the high-value Nazis were put there, um, and they maintained it with guards from all of those countries. The last Nazi died in the late 1980s, um, and ironically, this was when the Russians were controlling the prison. So we all, you know, were joking at the time to say, were they just tired of it, or you know, did he go naturally? Um, but with that in mind, do we want to be holding prisoners for 40 years? And that's what we did with the Nazis. And I, and I think that we as Americans need to have that conversation because there is a precedent. Want, okay, Let, let's let's look oh. at this for a second. If you want to have this conversation, okay, the, 
in the, in the case of the Nazis, what they did absolutely justifies having a prison and holding them for 40 years. They had to answer for their, for their abominations. In this case, these are non-uniformed, non-enemy combatants. These are terrorists mm -hmm. who will stop at nothing mm -hmm. to kill Americans just for the sake of killing Americans. And people and said guess that what? about the Chinese, they said it about the Japanese, and, and they said it about others. No, I'm no, not, I'm not this, is, this is absolutely, this is absolutely apples and oranges. No, Denise. it's not. It's, tell me why. Tell me why this is not apples and oranges. Tell me why you can sit here and tell me that releasing five classified by the international intelligence communities, not just our own, mm -hmm. as high-risk terrorists, okay, some of one individual who killed thousands of his own countrymen, girls, children, regardless of sex, regardless of age, they are, they are now trading cards. You, it, it makes, that absolutely, this deal alone justifies having Guantanamo Bay. Because you know what? Because I can control them right. in a jail cell. Because if they're in a jail cell on a Cuban island, yep. they're not in circulation killing Americans. You're right. That is my biggest point. Yeah. And that absolutely justifies holding them for 40 years. You know what? If I could put them in a supermax in Indiana, I'd do that. But nobody wants to take them. Well, there, I think what, but, but the, 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 the big difference is I, I, am, I think that the people that were in the Berlin prison all went through Nuremberg trials. So they had, they had trials. Yeah, and the, thing, the, the difference with, with Guantanamo, and this is, this is the new world we're talking yeah. about, yeah. They, didn't have, they haven't had trials. And yeah. they haven't had trials for a whole bunch of reasons. But the fact of the matter is they didn't get that sort of due process, the due process that's a, that's a key part of our system. And we know they're bad. And we know we, we can't control them, and we don't know what to do with them. So oh, we just awesome. keep them there. We did there. it with Nuremberg, and that's but, what we did. Yeah. Denise, Denise we, we did it in Nuremberg because that was a Geneva Convention uniform combatant, and we adhered we to the Geneva. We made up the rules the in Nuremberg. We, we made it up in the law. It was no, still it in accordance. Enough. It was still in accordance with the Geneva Convention. Even oh, Germany oh. says. Killing, killing is killing. Killing. <coughs> but in Nuremberg, <coughs> these people killed seven million plus people, awful. plus the soldiers that died in battle, and and that's what that's the big difference. Um, we lost a lot of people in 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 the 9/11. We've lost people around the world, and other countries have lost people because of terrorism. But it. <coughs> It doesn't compare to what the Germans did. Well, yeah. Uh, let's be careful here because yeah, remember we're, we're, that, we're talking about we were talking about uniformed personnel or civilian leaders of the military for countries that were operating in a certain way that were engaged in battle that could end up with some kind of armistice. That's different, and they will they they had laws. They have laws. In the case of these terrorists, these were not uniformed people who were responsible to a higher uh, Command authority. civilian authority or military authority, and we don't know what to do with them. It's, if they had killed millions, thousands, whatever, it wasn't about the size of how many people died. It was 
who they are and how you hold them accountable and the challenges of bringing cases against them in some sort of a, of a proceeding that could still protect your, your, your sources of information. It's a terribly awkward position for America to be in, in a well, country with, that, that, that observes the rule of law, except every now except and then. Except that we, we, don't. When says we don't have to. Uh, Bob Hines. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> We're not going to probably ever fight a war like World War II again. The times have changed. We're, it, it, we're different now. The world is different. What the situation now is, rather than fighting organized armies that are marching against you, you are, you are dealing with political extremists, religious political extremists, uh, those kind of, that are existing in many, many countries that have uh, long-time aggravations and, and, and things they hate about other countries, other people, other groups, and they're going to continue to be after, you know, the people they don't like. And we have to find, we meaning the world, the Western world in this sense, and primarily us, because we're the biggest, easiest target, because we're such an open country, we have to find a way to do what we have to do. Now, I don't know, and I don't know how it can be structured internationally with law or anything else, but Alan's right. It's hard to, what, what do we do with these people? Now, if, if there isn't any stru legal structure that we're able to utilize against them internationally, then the only thing to do is put them in a cell, take the key, put it in the, put it the same place that Flight 370 is, someplace in the Indian Ocean, and leave them there. And that's what we've been doing at, at, at Guantanamo. And it, it, it's a problem. We don't like what we're doing there, obviously. But the fact of the matter is, it's a different universe today. But we have to find a way to take people, as many as we can capture when they're fighting with us, capture them, put them away, and leave them there. And we have to find a way to do it. And it's a very difficult thing. I, I, I have to disagree with that. I think that's a very, very steep slope that we're heading to. I mean, our country was founded on the rule of law because we wanted to make sure that people had rights. And we need to establish some sort of structure. Other, otherwise, you know, we don't have a rule of law. And, well, and that's we, the problem. Well, now, wait, wait, wait. It, 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 I, the rule of law. But wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, according to CNN, President Obama from Poland just this morning said, quote, we have consulted with Congress for quite some time about the possibility we may have to execute a prisoner exchange. He continued, quote, we saw an opportunity and we were concerned about his health and had cooperation from the Qataris and we seized that. It was truncated to make sure we didn't miss that opportunity. And from the presidential perspective, that seems like a legitimate statement to say, hey, look, get in the American home, let's put them on a plane, we, you know, we'll... You know, it, it's a ask forgiveness versus ask permission situation. Alan Moore. Well, we've already covered all those all those points. I mean, there's nothing that's there that he has said. He's buying in. It's his, it was his decision. He he had the power to make the decision. I think we've we've pretty much covered that territory. Yeah. We one thing we didn't we haven't mentioned is that that Susan Rice, uh, who many of us felt sort of sorry for for the whole Benghazi business when she went on five TV programs, 
red talking points that were handed to her by the White House and the intelligence communities, um, linking the, the attacks on Benghazi to, uh, to a, a, a YouTube video um, that turned out to not be the case and people knew it at the time. On this weekend, she said uh, in her enthusiasm for this deal that, that uh, Bergdahl had served with honor and distinction. In this particular, which does not seem to match up to every report that is out there, um, it's uh, before we could say that she was handed uh, bad talking points. Today, she's the national security advisor. She would have been writing the talking points. Um, it's not been a big issue yet, but, but I don't think she helped herself or her credibility with that. With the president, all he said was, Whatever, what, what the rest of them are saying. The problem is, and Saxby Chambliss is, is a retiring senator from Georgia. He was the senior Republican on the Intelligence Committee um, fairly recently in, in the Senate. Pretty thoughtful guy, a guy willing to work across the aisle. He said yesterday that, that, that the White House promised them when they were pushing back 30 months ago at this prisoner exchange don't worry, we will consult you before we make any swap deal. And, and Saxby Chambliss, who's not known for this kind of exaggerated talk, said, I can no longer believe anything that that man says. And, and that's exactly. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. You know, just because the guy's a Republican, it's who it is. All Republicans are not equal. The president harms himself when he ignores what he says in the past and what he promises. And, and I, I, I cite Chambliss because of his role in the Intelligence Committee and his personal exchange. You don't just dismiss that because he's a Republican. The president can harm himself. And I think this issue dwarfs Benghazi. It pushed the whole VA scandal right off of the news, this one's going to live on because people relate to it in so many different levels. Was it a good deal? What was the story, the backstory? Has the administration been forthcoming? And all of those things appeal to different sorts of people. And it, because it's an American serviceman okay, coming well, home, well, it lives on. Denise Krupp and Bob okay. Hines. Um, you know, in, oh, let's see, what was it, 1983, there was a president named of Ronald Reagan. That year, Marine Corps barracks were bombed in Beirut. Do you know what he did to show he had American power? We went into Grenada. Okay? So when you start talking about how to do a dodge, which is what I kind of thought that was, that's what Ronald Reagan did. And Bob Hines? Invaded it for medical well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Kicked ass. Bob Hines? They were so old they couldn't find the medical school. So I wanted to say this. To me, the biggest problem here is that the president and the people around him are reluctant, for whatever reason, and I do not know what it is, reluctant to trust anybody but the inner circle around the president. Nobody knows what they're doing half the time on, these, on things like this. And all it does is make it so clear to, the, to anybody paying attention, particularly people on Capitol Hill, that the president doesn't give a damn about that. And he's just making it tougher and tougher for himself. 
He's digging himself more and more holes, a deeper hole all the time, and I do not understand why he is unable to talk to his own party leadership, if not the Republicans, his own people, and he's not. And it's just, it's just like saying here, I think I'll just slit my throat a little bit more. But it, 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 yeah, it's crazy. It, 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 it seems to me, it, it, it obviously seems to me that the, 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 the president, and, and, and I've said this before on this show, I will, I, I will always have respect for President Obama for the fact that he is the duly elected president of the United States. He is, in fact, the commander-in-chief. I, I will give him that, and I will always respect him. You know, I love the people that come up and say, if I see, if I see Obama, I'm going to give it. No, you're not. You're going to see Air Force One. You're going to see all the Secret Service. You're going to see everything about him. And the first words out of your mouth are going to be, good morning, Mr. President. The reality is I will give him that respect. But, the, but in return for that respect, I also have an expectation that he will be up, up front and upright and honest with those who provide oversight as part of their job in Congress, and he has not established that credibility to any extent, especially in the second term. Well, just, I hate to say it, George Bush had problems with the Democrats. I mean, I, I, there were many of us who didn't trust anything he ever said, so that was, you know, Republican versus Democrat there. And then when you start looking at George Bush Sr., yeah, there were problems right. with that one. I mean, this is the natural tension between Democrats and Republicans. This is nothing, I mean, this is nothing new. It's common. This is what's been no. happening. I, I, we're obviously going to keep an eye on this story. This is a story that's not going to go away. We're going to continue to talk about it in future programs. But we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Rick White, who is the Executive Director of Government Affairs for Vietnam Veterans of America. And we're going to talk about the current VA scandal, the General Shinseki resignation from the VA, and what can the VSOs do to help put pressure on the administration that we got to clean this thing up to help our veterans. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three and a half minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. And we're back here live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. Hey, joining us right now on the line, he is the Executive Director for Policy and Government Affairs at the Vietnam Veterans of America, one of the great veteran services organizations here in town. He is Rick Wyden. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hey, Rick, uh... Let's start off with a bigger issue on the situation at the Veterans Administration. Uh, You've obviously been at the forefront in dealing with uh, then-Secretary Shinseki uh, and his predecessors throughout the term of this apparent scandal. Uh, As far as VVA is concerned, how how big of a blow is this to the veterans' communities, and and how much of a shockwave is it sending through the administration, in your opinion? Well, I I think it's huge on both counts, um, but uh, this is a practice that has been going on for some time, and the mindset behind the practice that it's okay to uh, shade the truth or make up the truth or hide the truth, that actually has been going on for some time. Um, I'll just use as one quick example. In 1985, uh, it was on... Uh, at that point, uh, Administrators Advisory Committee on Readjustment of Vietnam Veterans, and uh, we asked the the, um, Deputy Chief Counsel for um, Mental Health, Chief Consultant for Mental Health, um, we hear from all over the country about waiting lists. What are you all doing about it? And um, uh, they said, there are no waiting lists. And I said, well, we have five places where we know absolutely there's waiting lists of a year and a half or longer. And he said, there are no waiting lists. And I said, are you telling us that there's no waiting lists at any VA medical center in the country? And he said, yes. And so I was perplexed and got quiet, and other people asked other questions. But before the guy left, I said, I have to ask you one more question, doctor. How do you know there's no waiting lists? And he said, well, we sent out a memo. I said, you, I beg your pardon? <laughs> they did. They sent out a memo forbidding them to have a waiting list. 
So this mindset's been kicking around for a while over there. Right. Rick, it, it seems that, according to you, that, that you and the other veteran services organizations have known about this even before uh, the VA became a cabinet-level agency. Was, was there optimism when, uh, when, in fact, the VA was elevated in status to a cabinet-level agency, that there might have been changes and, and, and actually more of an investment in servicing our veterans through the VA? Well, there was, but um, um, the VA being short on enough people has been the case all my adult life. I mean, that was really the problem when we came back from Vietnam is that uh, all of their resources were going to taking care of World War II vets, and I don't begrudge a World War II vets at all, but then they regarded us as interlopers and uh, besides, you guys didn't fight the, a real war anyway, and um, so it produced a lot of split between the generations that became, unfortunately, a split over resources. Uh, plus, they refused to admit that PTSD or, or Agent Orange were significant problems, but in fact, they they were and continue to be. Um, so, it, that in that sense, it's gone on for a very long time. More recently, um, the we had significant increases in the budget for VHA between FY 2005 and FY 2011. Uh, actually, excuse me, FY 2007 through FY 2011. And those, that was the biggest increase ever, even greater than following World War II. Um, and we were saying over and over again to the Undersecretary for Health and to the Secretary that they're hiring you guys are hiring too many middle-middle people. You're not hiring enough clinicians. And the Congress gave you this big plus-up in order to hire more frontline, hands-on providers. And that's not what you guys are doing. And so they continued to fudge the issues. Um, when I say they, I'm talking about VHA. And, um, you know, the, the uh, secretary believed the people around him, including his uh, former chief of staff, that... Um, that the Undersecretary for Health was correct and we were wrong, that they had plenty of clinicians. And, of course, they did, uh, even though that was proven wrong in the case of mental health. Um, the Secretary continued to have overall faith in the former uh, Undersecretary, and that was unfortunate. So we knew that it was coming for a blow-up at some point, and it did. And now is the time to really make some systemic changes uh, that will produce a better managed, much more accountable system. However, we still do need additional dollars at this point. Um, we figure about $2.5 billion to go into uh, hiring permanent clinicians and um, uh, with some of that going to purchase care while they're building up the organizational capacity of the organization, and then an additional $500 um, million at least, and in, in you've got to have a place to deliver health care, and there needs to be minor construction, minor meaning anything less than constructing a whole new hospital. And frankly, there ought to be sharing agreements with the Public Health Service, Indian Health Service, DOD, but may, while assuming that there are separate and distinct 
missions, there can be some crossover. We, we, it, it sounds like to me that, that uh, your organization, yourself, and, and the other veteran services organizations, that when the rest of America found out about the whistleblowing that was happening at the Phoenix VA Medical Center, it, it, although it came as a, as a shocking surprise to most Americans, it wasn't so much a surprise to you and the VBA? It was a surprise that it occurred at, at Phoenix, actually, um, uh, number one. And number two, the extent to which um, the links that they went to cover it up uh, was pretty shocking because at the same time we knew there were abuses. Um, you know, it's it's still difficult to accept that anyone would place the life of another human being, much less a a fellow citizen who had risked life and limb in defense of the Constitution, place them in um, in severe jeopardy of uh, uh, death or uh, disability by ignoring them essentially now they could have they could have used purchase care and taken down that waiting list and they didn't well i want to talk about that one second but you know through through many sources that that we've talked to uh in the va and in other vsos the vietnam veterans community is a large part now of those being primarily serviced by VA medical centers, but is is the VA, in in your opinion, in a situation right now where they have the capability, even remotely, to service not only an aging Vietnam veteran community, but the insurgents of returning veterans from a two-front war? Um, well, the answer is yes, if properly... Um properly distributed. I mean, one of the two things that we recommended immediately to the president was a uh, redeployment or reconfiguring. Everybody who is trained as a clinician within the Veterans Health Administration, we believe, should be detailed right now, this week, beginning tomorrow, um, uh, to spend four days a week seeing patients. And they can do whatever else they do the other day of the week, or they can work over the weekend. I do in uh, times like these, and they're highly paid enough that they can do. So um, so it's uh, that's one thing. And the second thing is to, um, whether it's calls uh, taking mobile hospitals that are National Guard or Reserve or active duty, for that matter, or female hospitals or public health facilities, uh, public health uh, mobile units that they use, um, setting them up in the parking lot, if need be, of every VA hospital in the country to do screening and to do screening for the 10 or 12 major issues that, uh, that are killing Vietnam and other veterans at the VA hospital. You're correct that about two-thirds of the VA uh, uh, hospital population at this point is, uh, are Vietnam vets, about 62%. Um, and um, although I don't know that our guys don't use it as much and for as many things, by and large, as the younger vets. Alan Moore, you have a question? Yeah, Rick, 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 first of all, a, a quick observation. I was thinking as you were telling that story about waiting lists and no waiting lists, I was thinking that it's, it's almost Clinton-esque to say, oh, we don't have any waiting lists. Uh, oh, but wait times? Yeah, yeah, you might have to wait months to be seen, but we don't have a waiting list. Um, 
What I wanted to ask you, though, actually, I, it I, reminded us more of, Cat, of Joseph Heller's great novel Catch Twenty Two. But fair, go on. Fair, <laughs> fair point. Yeah. Fair point. So, so uh, I was I was watching uh, this afternoon uh, briefly a, a, a statement of some of the Republicans who have a bill they're calling the Choice Act that would allow military people to to seek, go outside the VA if they can't uh, get served with, at the VA for in a particular period of time. And I know that the Senator Bernie Sanders has got a bill that does a little of that and a whole lot of other things. Um, but one of the points that, that Senator Tom Coburn was making, which, which got my attention, and I would like to ask you to comment on, he, he was talking about productivity inside the VA system versus outside. And what the, the two facts that stood out to me, uh, or two, out, two uh, assertions that stood out to me, he said that the operating rooms at VA hospitals are used about 60% of the time compared to average regular hospitals, and that, that primary care physicians see about half as many people as in, in normal hospitals. So I guess my question is, do, do those numbers seem right to you? Is there an explanation for that, or is there some room to improve with current staffing levels and capacities before we simply say, well, that's how it is at the VA, uh, so we need to uh, bring in a lot more people? Right. It, uh, well, there's two things. One is, uh, as you noticed what I said before, is redeploying people who already work at the VA but who... Um, now push papers. I mean, nobody's ever, and I've asked this question seriously of people at the VA, what the heck is a nurse executive? <laughs> is this a, uh, to me, it's a person who trained as a nurse, may have been pretty good at it, but now all they do is shuffle paper. Um, and they have a lot of them. Um, the, what I would say to the Senator Coburn is, is a couple of things. One is, we have said repeatedly, including in the recommendations that we sent to the president uh, early last week, um, that they're using the wrong formula, the Millman formula, and it's so-called because it was developed by Millman and Associates out of Seattle. They developed the formula for PPOs and HMOs, and it was for basically for middle-class people who have uh, have not had a hard life and. Uh, therefore, they predicated it on one to three presentations or things wrong with you per individual. Uh -huh. Well, when they, when they first installed this under the Bush administration, um, uh, it, the VA average was five to seven presentations per individual. It's now much higher. Uh, the younger vets, uh, meaning OIF vets, OEF vets, uh, they have an average of about 14 presentations per person. So if you estimate the coming need of, uh, of how many clinicians you're going to need on the basis of the Millman formula, you're going to, that's predicated on one to three, but it's really five to seven, and now is probably, um, uh, probably six to nine uh, per individual, you're always going to fall short because you're always estimating a half to a third of the amount of resources you're going to need. So uh, it's uh, it's it's not uh, you're going to be constantly using a formula, and even though you try and correct it in spinal cord injury and mental health and blinded visual uh, services, etc., for it still doesn't 
it still doesn't make up for the fact that the formula is wrong, and it's based on uh, people who, from my lips to God's ear, will never have to be exposed to the things that those of us who have served in combat zones have. Uh, the second thing has to do with, with uh, uh, in, the, in regard to the, can they be more efficient in their utilization of uh, provider time? The answer is yes. And it's uh, and we have encouraged that and urged them over and over and over again to uh, have more stations for each dentist, as an example. Your private dentist will have at least three chairs if it's for one person. And they'll be using the text to the utmost to maximize the time that the dentist actually has to be in your mouth. But the same thing is true of uh, primary care physicians. Should have three uh, rooms that they move quickly between with allied healthcare people doing all of the prep. And frankly, because the hospitals are so old, they're not flexible to set them up that way, but they need to be set up that way in order to maximize the clinical resources. In regard to the OR, uh, a lot of that is not scheduling, but it's lack of staff. They do not have the OR techs, the anesthesiologists, etc., to utilize the operating room to the extent that it should be used with the press in that uh, in that uh, catchment area. In other words, you can have the surgeon time, but if you don't have every the other people who need to be there, because uh, because you you didn't fill vacancies, then you're in deep trouble, and that's it contributes to that. And having said all that, we've always yep. said from the outset we need strings on more money. Well, Rick, you bring up the issue of more money. The, the, um, the, the Congress had the opportunity to pass two bills, including a very largely funded omnibus bill that the Republicans largely came out and voted against. Did it come as a surprise to you that, that in fact, that especially in light of what we're seeing now coming out of Phoenix and the rest of the problems out of VA, that the omnibus bill that many of the VSOs supported and went to Congress on was shot down inherently by the Republican Party? Um, you know, I, I, party doesn't. Party has no place, and partisanship has no place in veterans affairs. It's just like, frankly, in foreign policy, uh, our differences should end at the water's edge, and um, we try and come to a consensus on what our foreign policy should be. And same, same, definitely, when you're talking about veterans affairs, and there's, uh, in a, generally, there have been breakdowns, but generally in the past, it's been one place where Democrats and Republicans can agree. Um, and that's as it should be. Um, and it broke down in this particular instance. Um, I'm not sure who struck John or who didn't horse trade or who didn't listen and make changes in good faith. Um, but but that happened. And frankly, I was more than a little bit stunned that uh, uh, Senator Burr attacked um, my integrity along with that of my colleagues who testified at the hearing earlier uh, in May. Um, you can call me stupid, you can call me misinformed, you can call me off target, you can call me a lot of things, but you can't call me dishonest and currying favor. Anybody who knows me just started laughing when they said, when he said that in his open letter to veterans. Um, 
I'm here to speak truth to power. All of us at BVA are here to speak truth to power. And if people don't like it, then that means they don't like the truth, and they better just wake up and start doing right. Are we in danger, or are we close to, or have we already crossed the path where traditionally, as you said, veterans' issues have always been bipartisan, and everybody can come to agreement that we always support our members of the armed services. Have we crossed the point where we now politicize veterans' affairs issues, and how dangerous is that to veterans? Well, I would say it's very dangerous to veterans, but I think we'll be able to pull back from this. Um, uh, if nothing else, I think that despite, uh, uh, I know Senator Byrd doesn't speak for many of his colleagues on that, on that, uh, on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee on the Republican side, because uh, we have long-standing, uh, uh, respectful relations with them, and uh, I don't think that's going to change. Um, we will continue to respect them, and they'll continue on their side, by and large, to respect us. That doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. But challenging people's integrity when you don't agree with them is, you know, it's that lack of civility that's destroying the Congress. And, frankly, rending the fabric of the American body politic. Denise Krepp, you have a question? We need to get beyond it. Hey, Rick, it's Denise. I've got a quick question for you. There are several pieces of legislation uh, dealing with the VA that seem to be focusing on firing people that... The VA doesn't have the ability to fire current employees that aren't doing their job. Have you had a chance to talk to the VA about this? I mean, why do they think they can't fire people who are lying about wait times? Um, it, it's basically because um, they've had great difficulty in um, sending away people at the SES position. Um, and that's... Uh, uh, I know the former undersecretary was arguing with some of us EDs from the big six organizations, said, I have plenty of power now, and I, and I can fire anybody that needs to be fired. And we said, really? Uh, well, what about the woman from Missouri? This was uh, actually during the Bush administration where they fired her, um, and she went, took him to court, and they kept her for three years plus on the payroll, making $180,000 a year. Every Monday morning, they flew her from Kansas City to Washington. She worked in a room without an office, and excuse me, without a window and without a phone for eight hours a day and was on per diem and hotel picked up. And then on Friday afternoon, flew her back to Kansas City, and they did that for three years. So you're telling me that you can fire people? I have a hard time believing it. Why in the world did you keep her? Bob Hines has uh, a question. It was, did he have an answer? The, the, no, he didn't. <laughs> you know. So um, I don't think it should be just at will. Um, people who come into federal service should have some due process, but it should not be as difficult uh, if you've established his malfeasance at any level. Um, and uh, And at the very top level, one of the solutions that people who have suggested, and I'm not sure I agree with this, but um, it might turn out to be the solution, is that uh, network directors and people at that level uh, be scheduled C appointments. Many of them will be made from the senior bureaucrat uh, positions um, of the permanent uh, civil service, 
but they can remove them from that slot uh, easily and quickly if they um, if they um, are not acting correctly. Bob Hines, you have a question for Rick Wyden. Yes, Rick, listening to you, it sounds to me like the the uh, the veterans organizations, yours and others, have understood for a, a substantial amount of time that there are serious problems within the department and the, and the hospital system. And it sounds yes. also as though you, you have been regularly, I gather, uh, in testimony before committees, as you indicated, talking to the Congress about this. And it strikes yes. me that I don't understand why something hasn't happened. It strikes me that I, I don't know that I've, uh, I've ever noticed any act, anything in a public sense where the veterans' organizations have, in effect, said, Congress, get your act together. And uh, it, it strikes me, you know, have, have, have you guys done enough to, 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 to try to encourage those, those folks on Capitol Hill to do something? Am I, am I being too... Um, uh, Difficult. I mean, I don't want, don't mean to be critical, but I'm wondering. It seems like there are so many organizations and in, interested. They're always are able to scream and yell and carry on, and I can't imagine a, a better a group of of, uh, in, of organizations supporting a better bunch of people who deserve and earn have earned their right to good health care, and and, and, see, and Congress seems to be, from what you're saying, is just not paying attention. Um, like most large organizations, and incidentally, it's not just government organizations. If you become CEO of IBM, try changing the corporate culture there. Um, it's going to be very hard. Um, and uh, you have uh, – uh, it's difficult to head up a large organization and change that corporate culture and change the way in which they do business. It's not that people try and blame the unions – for the problems in the American auto business, but frankly, we blame the management um, um, it, because they had a, a cavalier view of the people who actually built the cars, number one, and number two is if they were poorly engineered and they didn't listen to the people on the line. Um, why didn't this impact the Congress? Uh, you know, I don't know what to say about that for a long time. I know that we talked about it too uh, and testified to it before the appropriations and the authorizers uh, for a long time. And uh, uh, you're probably right, you know. Um, have you ever. Say anybody else, but I, I, I feel ever, that I wasn't effective enough. Have you ever considered in the past going public? Um, you know, beyond just talking to Capitol Hill. If, you know, obviously you've been talking to them for years. Uh, there, has there ever been a, 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 a public uh, campaign to alert the public to the fact that the veterans are being, uh, you know, routinely uh, enhanced? They, they, they've been screwed, if you will, because of the system breaking down and... Uh, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen anything in a public, uh, public way that would indicate that, uh, you know, Congress has, has basically dropped the ball here. You know, I, I, uh, there's plenty of 
blame can be going around for everybody, probably including us at the VSOs. We, however, have very limited um, resources at our command. And uh, I guess the, a number of reporters asked me, why did the thing finally blow up? You've been trying to say this stuff for years, Rick. Why did uh, it blow up in Phoenix? And I said, I think it blew up because a reporter used the term secret list. And that caught people's imagination. Walter Reed, the Washington Post was not the first one to do a long article or an expose of what was going on at Walter Reed between 2003 and 2006. There were a number of reporters who wrote very, uh, very excellent journalism in exposing the problems with David Chu, um, uh, downsizing and with Rumsfeld's approval, downsizing the size of the Army Medical Department and the Navy Medical Department and the Air Force Medical Department, which means fewer doctors, as the casualties mounted. And what the hell did you think was going to happen? You had two fewer and fewer clinicians and more and more clinical needs chasing fewer and fewer clinicians. Of course it was going to turn into a disaster. Dana's genius was that she understood that people read about um, uh, patient-doctor ratios, about screwed-up case management, about this and that and the other, but what? and they're not going to get it. Their eyes glaze over it. But you show somebody living, having to live in a rat hole with mold on the walls, and everybody gets it. And well, suddenly, yeah. there was this big, big whoop-de-doo. Now, by the way, everything wrong with that picture did not get fixed. They threw a lot of money at it, and they did a lot of cosmetic stuff. But the problems of too few um, uh, clinicians inside the Army, inside of the military services in general, to deal with any significant uh, military action in the future uh, is is now a big problem. It's one of the reasons why uh, Secretary Hagel has off, uh, uh, demanded that we, they do a 90-day review of the military medical systems. So it's whether it's it's the picture of the mold on the wall or whether it's a term secret list, something that caught the um, imagination of the American public and all of a sudden, boom, it becomes a big deal. Real quickly, Rick, uh, we're going a little bit long here. We appreciate your time. Two questions. One, on Friday, uh, it was announced that uh, Secretary Shinseki had offered his, and the President accepted his resignation. It, is this the solution? Was Shinseki part of the problem or is this a, a new dawn for the VA, uh, or was this just a Band-Aid on a much larger problem? You mean the resignation of Secretary Shinseki? Yes. Um, we, we sent a 15-point uh, plan to the President earlier last week about things that we recommended for immediate action. That's also been shared with Acting Secretary Gibson, um, and with Acting Undersecretary, uh, who's trying to find time in his uh, calendar to meet with us. It looks like now it'll be two weeks before he can possibly meet with either VVA or AMVETS, who also put together a detailed plan, different than ours, but there's some overlap. Um, so um, I think that uh, I think that we really have not seen the sense of urgency from the Veterans Health Administration, although there is the sense of urgency 
uh, in the secretary's suite. And, you know, frankly, we don't know where the White House is in all of this, because if you're going to use other federal uh, resources, it obviously has to involve the White House. And right. um, we've, not, we've not met with anybody from the White House. Right. Well, uh, we're, we're, we're out of time here. Uh, Rick Wyden, the executive director of the veteran, Vietnam Veterans of America, executive director for policy and government affairs. Rick, we really appreciate your time, and, and obviously this is a subject we're going to keep on top of. We'd love to have you back. Love to, and thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Rick. Appreciate that. Hey, as, we, as I said earlier, we've gone long. I want to go ahead and do away with the break here uh, since we did go long a little bit. Uh, I want to leave it up to you. We can, you want to continue talking about this, or do we go to the other subject at hand? Round the table. What do you think, Alan? What was the other subject? <laughs> Jake Harney and the press secretary. Well, let's, let's, let's move on. I think okay. We've okay. We've uh, as, as was announced also last Friday in a surprise move, uh, Jake Harney announced his resignation as White House press secretary. Uh, he's been the front man for the Obama administration to the media for several years. And it caught some inside the, the beltway as a surprise. Uh, Bob Hines, you've been around the White House. You've been around press secretaries. Did it come as a surprise that Jay Carney did it and did it as abruptly as he did? Well, the answer is yes and no. I mean, sometimes it takes, you know, it's, uh, it's a well-structured uh, goodbye. Other times it's like this. It's, it, I think he just wore out. I can understand why he wore out. I mean, I, can't, I cannot imagine a tougher job than making, poli making the policies of this president uh, making good sense for a lot of people. It's, it's, it, he had a hard job. It's always a hard job. There is, that is one of the hardest jobs in America. And uh, I think he, he uh, did a pretty, good, a pretty darn good job of uh, making uh, as good a picture as he could of what was a lot of... Uh, a lot of policy issues that, that didn't work out very well. Uh, Denise Krapp, you know, Carney as the de facto voice of the White House has dealt with a barrage of scandals since the start of the second term. Uh, Fox News is quoting. And he had a tough, tough job trying to spin the media and the American public on some really difficult situations, whether it was Benghazi, healthcare.gov, and now the VA scandal. Uh, did it come as a shock to you that Jake Harney just said, look, I just can't do this anymore? No. I mean, he's human. And like those of us around the table who have been in the administration, it's a burnout. I mean, you're never home, you never see your spouse, you never see your children, you don't know what time of day is, you come into the office when it's dark, you leave the office when it's dark, and at some point in time you have to realize that life is very short, and you know what, you did a great job, and go enjoy yourself. Carl Tubin, you, you, you also have been around Washington a long time, you've seen press secretaries on both sides. How effective was Jay Carney as press secretary? I think... <coughs> For what he had to deal with, he was very, very effective. Um, <clears throat> he had a lot of problems to talk about, and uh, and he, I think he did it admirably. Alan Moore, he was all right. You know, he it's a being press secretary means you have to know what the press is looking for, which is almost always means it's a practicing journalist. Not always. 
um, uh, Gibbs, his predecessor, was not a practicing journalist, and he was a lousy press secretary because he was always being a political advocate. The problem for people who come out of the, the world of journalism is they really do try to get it right. They really do try to be fair. They really don't try not to be advocates. A press secretary has to be an advocate. So you're fighting against all the instincts that you learned and you were trained to do. That means that unless you're a real chameleon, you, you have a lot of trouble. He had trouble. And he got into he got into tiffs with with the press at different times that that could have been avoided. But he's human. Uh, in terms of his planning to leave, obviously this was in place for some time. Otherwise, he never would have quit the same day that Shinseki resigned. But that was all in place. He's got young children. His wife is in the world of journalism. He's been doing this crazy job for three and a half years. Denise summed it up very well. When you go to work in the dark and come home in the dark and you've got small children at home, that's not good for anybody, least of all the kids. So three and a half years is a pretty long tenure. So uh, no big surprise. Uh, and now also with the White House, with this president still being in place for the next two and a half years, He's more bankable on the outside, and that's right. an issue, too. He, he's going to be in demand because he's an insider and so on. But I, I think we have to accept the fact that, that burnout is a big piece of this. If, it, if he didn't burn out, then there's something really wrong with it. Bob Hines, your, your wife, Gail Raymond, was, in fact, press secretary for then Vice President Gerald R. Ford. Uh, how demanding is this job, and how much of a jack-of-all-trades do you really have to do to be effective? as a press secretary? What you have to be is almost, um, is almost a superhuman person. It's very difficult. Gail was not the, was not the out front person. Right. She, I'm sorry. She yeah. was in the press office. Yeah. Correct. But basically, uh, what you have to do is you've got to stay on top of every issue, every story, and get as much information as you can and try to pull it together and try to, try to make it you know, look as good as you can. And it is, a, it is a job that you can never win on. You can, all you can do is break even if you've lucky. Uh, You've you got, you got to admit, though, uh, Obama announced immediately after the announcement of Jay Carney's resignation that, John, that Josh Ernst is going to uh, Josh Ernest is going to be the new press secretary in a permanent role, 39 years old. Uh, he's really inheriting a, a complete and total crap storm, Denise. <laughs> I mean, is he being thrown into the deep end right now? Well, yeah, but that's the nature of this job. I mean, but what I would say to his spouse and his family is, um, see you in two plus years. <laughs> <laughs> Not right. Uh, go ahead, Carl Tubin. But, but he might end up at MSNBC or NBC <laughs> or an or a, uh, anchor somewhere yeah, because of the experience that he'll get in the next yeah. two years. Exactly. So. Just what this town needs is another pundit. Uh, <laughs> when, you know, when, when we look at press secretaries, Alan Moore, who are some of the great ones that are memorable in our modern day of, of the 24-hour news cycle that come to mind? Well, when you say great ones and memorable, in some ways, those terms are in conflict because, <laughs> because 
most memorable people. The are most memorable <laughs> are the people that you would like to forget. They become memorable because of blunders or or actions they take. Uh, it, it was pointed out though that that it was it was uh, President Clinton's press secretary, uh, Mike McMurray, who first decided to allow C-SPAN cameras in to film the daily briefings live which changed the nature of the daily briefings. It meant that every newspaper reporter who was in the room wanted to have a chance not just to be on C-SPAN that day, but maybe ask the question that was sufficiently embarrassing for the press secretary that it made news accidentally. So the things started getting longer and longer. There was more and more repetition of uh, of questioning. So the questions have been asked and answered, but not everybody's asked it. So here's another reporter, and it's kind of the, the, the main news, news agencies, newspapers, and, and, and TV broadcasts are in the front rows. You start there, and then you move back. So it became more and more of a show and a circus. I thought McMurray was, was uh, McCurry, McCurry was a, was a, was, was pretty good, although I think that was a massive mistake to uh, allow C-SPAN to come in. It changed the nature of everything. You had to have almost expected it was due to come, especially with the veracity of the 24-hour news cycle. They didn't have to do that. No. They didn't have to do that at all. The Supreme um, Court doesn't change it. Supreme Court doesn't do and it. Well, there's pressure on the court right now to do that. Well, and they won't change. The court won't change if they're well, smart. If they're right. smart. And I so think they will be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, what, they, what they really should do is turn the cameras off after 30 minutes, and then it would change the it back. Because it's it's fine to get the spokesperson out there saying is something. Is the spokesperson... Is, is the, is the, the press secretary, as we know it, that role has changed, as you're saying, since the C-SPAN cameras, they become more of a celebrity. They become Absolutely. more of a story than the mouthpiece for the administration. And then they get full of themselves, yeah. and then they're recognized in the street, and people, oh, you're so-and-so, and they're treated like they're, they're important, and they start looking at the chances that this might mean a big payday down the road. And they start it's, getting on the Sunday morning news programs and that kind of stuff. You mean, wait a minute, you mean like Ari Fleischer and every and Mike McCurry and everything like that? My gosh, never, never saw that coming. Carl Tubin. I was going to use this as, a, as my story, but I've known two, two press secretaries fairly well, Jody Powell and Marlon Fitzwater. And I met Marlon because I was part of a coalition on telecommunications reform. And Marlon walked in and said, well, you have to teach me about this. I said, what do you mean? He said, the only thing I know how to do with a, with a phone is rip it off the wall and throw it against another wall when I was so ticked off at the press. And then he said, there was a, another time, he said, you get it from all ends. You get it from Congress, you get it from the cabinet secretary, you get it from the president's wife. And he was in a situation where he had not been briefed about Donald Reagan. And he, he came out one day, and uh, they said, is Donald Reagan going to stay on? And Marlon said, yes, he's going to stay on. Uh, he's in good terms with the president. He walks back into his office. The phone rings. And who is it? Yes. Mrs. Reagan, who says, Marlon, do me a favor. 
do not ever say anything about Donald Reagan again. <laughs> Two or three days later, Donald Reagan was out of there. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly right. You know, it, 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 it's amazing as we look at the 24-hour news cycle and how the press secretary interacts. The press room has gotten much larger. Uh, they've now included bloggers, organizations like our own Backroom Politics Radio. You know, everybody, all the digital media now has press credentials at the White House. Have, have we gotten overly press friendly or overly press obsessed in the White House, Bob Hines? Uh, I don't know how you can stop it. But the fact of the matter is, with all those people preening and wanting to get to ask the key questions and pushing and trying to get in the position to get them, uh, it's, uh, it has changed a lot and it's become more, more of, a, uh, of a situation that the, obviously the reporters are trying to get news, but they're also trying to build their careers and I think a little bit, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is getting in the way of just getting good news coverage. Alan Moore, remember what, what, what reporters want is scoops. And a scoop is when you're ahead of your competition. The problem with the, the, the press conferences is that they're, they're very long, A, but also everybody hears the same stuff. So there's nothing unique and special about it. So the real work of the, of the, the White House correspondence and of the White House press office, uh, obviously the daily briefing is important. You don't want to make news uh, inadvertently. But it's all the responses where, you, where, where so often somebody will say, we'll have to get back to you on that, or you want to talk to so-and-so about that. There's a whole staff that supports the press secretary, and they will be the ones who are having multiple conversations outside of the briefing, both to follow up or to, to help chase down a rumor that a reporter hears and so on. That's where the scoops come from. The, the, the daily briefing is, is kind of a sideshow, which is uh, an unfortunate sideshow. It sucks up an enormous amount of preparation time and, uh, and rarely makes news. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's odd, you know, that, that the press secretaries who largely went unnamed up until... Uh, let's call it the Reagan administration before we started seeing them as the voice of the administration. You know, that gradual transition, how far do we actually go in having these press briefings? I mean, are, are they sustainable, Bob Hines? Well, I would think that most White Houses wish they'd go away. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's yeah. There's there, there's no way to stop them really now. I mean, they're they're an institution and they're there and they're going to be there and there's no way to stop it. I mean, it's probably better if you're the White House to have it there than have it leaking all over the place. And that that way, at least you you, you control it to some degree. Who started that? that was, Harry Truman started the daily press briefings. Am I am I incorrect or? I'm not old enough to know. Oh, oh please. Don't even say that. You are, wow. You are, hell, hell, you were part of his kitchen cabinet. I don't know if they were daily, but Roosevelt had press briefings where he had 
the press come into the Oval Office. Yeah, right. Yeah. But there was a dozen reporters. Well, right. And right. he would do it. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We never had a, a quote-unquote press secretary yeah. the way we, we have it now. Well, we, we wish Jay Carney the best, and, and, and to Josh Ernest, we say good luck, brother. Good luck. We'll be watching. Uh, with that, it's now time for my favorite part of the show, Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the ins and outs, the buzz going around the Beltway, outside the Beltway, and all the innuendos that we can find. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Well, let me just finish something I didn't have a chance to say earlier. Uh, we were talking with the uh, gentleman from the uh, veterans groups. One of the things that struck me was that the, the veterans groups are working inside. They're talking to the Congress, but not very much. They're talking of their tone. But they're not doing anything to publicize the problem. They're not doing anything to uh, put some pressure on Congress. And I really think they make a fundamental mistake. I think they need to be, they need to be doing things that tell the public what to situate. Now it's broken open. But if, they've been, if they had been more effective early on in the last five years talking about the problems they've got and the problems on the, day, on the timetables for getting service and everything else, we, we, we probably would have settled this problem a little bit better than we're doing, when we're going to do it. It's unfortunate, but it strikes me that sometimes organizations like the, like the VA organizations, the, uh, the, the, the VSOs, organizations, the VSOs you know they are they're part of the they're part of the structure they're part of the in, in, inside baseball if you will and they're reluctant to you know to go outside and and, and say publicly boy is we got a problem here and because they haven't done it it's built up as bad as it has and that's unfortunate maybe they'll learn a lesson Denise Kraft, tell me a story last week I uh, referenced an independent that was thinking about running for Congress well um he announced, it's my husband. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, wow, this has been such a week. So if you have any questions about what it's like to be a campaign um, spouse, email me. It's been fascinating. <laughs> Alan Moore, tell campaign me. Campaign contributions accepted. No, we don't do that. Yeah. Alan Moore. Yeah. Tell um, me a story. Back, back when we were tracking down uh, Osama bin Laden and trying to figure out who was living in this compound in Pakistan, one of the techniques that was used to try to find out who was in there was to send a Pakistani doctor out to the house to ostensibly vaccinate for polio. In fact, he was trying to collect some DNA. Now, for some reason, A, people thought this was a good idea, and then to compound that problem, the, after we got bin Laden, some people thought, oh, we need to tell the world how clever we were that we were able to go in and try to do this. Now, that doctor's in prison. Um, he, was, he was deemed a traitor. He was an embarrassment to Pakistan. Here's the problem from a global health standpoint. Most people around the world are pretty ignorant about the need for regular childhood vaccinations for things like polio. And that was what he was there to, uh, to, to vaccinate against, polio. The, the aftermath of all of this is that health workers have become targets. Hundreds have been killed, many of them locals, um, volunteers, 
um, community, community health workers, Save the Children, which did nothing on polio, was kicked out of Pakistan after this happened. Um, so all of this chest thumping about how clever we were has cost the lives of many, and now in Pakistan there is a polio outbreak that is beginning to move. We, we are so close to, to finishing off polio, and this is a massive setback. So shame on all of us for thinking that we're so clever that we can undercut the credibility of these workers, and then two, let it be known, and now we're playing catch up and many lives are being lost. You know, you know what, Alan, I want to take Monterey's privilege on this one. Short of there something being something breaking next week, I want to make that a topic next week. That's a huge, huge issue. Uh, As a person who's lived with polio for most of my life, I agree. But, you know, this, the problem is not that the doctor did it. It's the problem that somebody talks about it. Well, no, there's also a, a prob an ethical problem for a doctor. doctor. You should never agree to do that. I, you know, again, it's easy to, to sit and judge. There were mistakes all the way down the line, but it, it's become... But I, I, want, I want to make that a sec. I actually want to make that a second. What, what, what did we just see, Denise? You just saw a retiring member of Congress in California. Yeah. Who's, who's that? It was Miller, wasn't yeah. it? Oh, was that Miller? Oh, yeah. Congressman Miller, you should have come in. Uh, but I want to make that a segment. That's a great, great segment. I want to take that up here. Carl Tubin, tell me a story real quick. Well, real quick, <clears throat> um, I don't know how many uh, pairs of uh, soles on my shoe have gone over the last, since 2003, of walking the halls for Congress and with Rick Weidman and others and telling them about the, the, uh, the uh, uh, horrible situations that were happening at the VA. <clears throat> Many didn't understand. Many didn't care because they weren't veterans. And there's all kinds of reasons. It, sometimes if you go out and talk about things, uh, then they turn against you for talking about them and making us look like fools. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that you're confronted with when you're trying to help veterans. Bob Hines. And it's too bad that we don't have more veterans in Congress. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. In fact, we just lost our last World War II veteran yeah. right. in uh, Ralph Hall, Ralph Hall right. out of Texas, Republican out of Texas, which is... His 91 name. years young. You know, God yeah. bless, God bless Congressman Hall. And still, and still <laughs> yeah. moving around like he moved around 40 years ago. Probably. Yeah. Two, two stories here real quick. One... Uh, one, regarding Rick Wyden's appearance on, we actually asked, uh, our newsroom actually called the VA to get a comment on the current situation and the resignation of General Shinseki. Uh, our producer was, our assistant producer was told uh, no comment or they did not respond in a timely manner. We gave them an opportunity. Let me tell the VA something. Folks, this is the type of radio show that a lot of people listen to. Regardless of our size, you still want to respond to a media inquiry, especially in a trouble. You might want to get a friendly voice out there because nobody supports veterans' issues more than a lot of people around the table. The response of no comment was insulting to our producer. It was insulting to the show, and it's insulting, it is insulting our listeners. So to the VA, we're going to be calling back, and we're going to be getting comment from you one way or another. Bob, you were going to lean in and say something. I'd say 
it would make a lot of sense for them to pay attention and yeah, I would respond. Think so. I would think so. Yeah. Second week in a row we're talking about this. Hey, the other story comes out of uh, something we've heard uh, regarding the space program. SpaceX, the commercial space program, there's talk that they're actually pulling out of or have been considering pulling out of their launch operations in Cape Canaveral and moving to Brownsville, Texas. If this in fact happens, it will destroy the economy of eastern central Florida. The, the folks at the congressional level and the administration, especially the Florida delegation, should be completely against this. It is the loss of thousands of technical jobs. It is the loss of thousands of high-paying jobs that the economy that was already destroyed because this administration doesn't support government-sponsored manned space flight. For them to shut down effectively the largest space operation in the country and move it to Brownsville is tragic. Tragic. That cannot happen if you value the jobs in eastern central Florida. Bob Hines. And how foolish to have all that structure. All the infrastructure. All the infrastructure. And have to replace it over in Brownsville. How stupid can you be? Welcome to, welcome to the current administration. Sounds like probably a, a private sector decision by the SpaceX folks <laughs> it is. who know what's in their interest. It, it is. They're not stupid. They're not they know stupid. where to yeah. get the best. And you want to know, and the, and, the, and the word that we got back from several sources down in Brevard County, down at the Kennedy Space Center, because the government, because the 45th Space Wing, the Space Command of the Air Force, gave them too much red tape to allow them to launch commercially. That's obscene. Anyway. I'm going to go on a soapbox on another time. Anyway, with that being the case, on behalf of Bob Hines, Denise Krepp, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, I am your host, I am moderator and radio personality Justin Russell. We will be back next week. Special thanks to our producer, Brent Sullivan, uh, our assistant producers, uh, Yarden Kakan, Eric Thomas. Good job today, guys. Uh, we will be back next week, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? The place to be. Come but, back next week. Now, you see, you screwed it up, man. He did a good job. He's just the place to be. He nailed it last week. You're getting too uh, artsy for me. I don't say. By the way, please. Yeah, well, <laughs> by the way, go to Kickstarter. We can always use your support. Kickstarter lasts another eight days. We can use your support. Help us make a better quality show for you. Go to Kickstarter and look up Washington Real Political Radio. With that, we'll see you next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.